Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful gathered here out of love for you. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when I was a senior in high school, I participated in the very first ever Miss El Campo beauty pageant. <laughs> and I made it into the top five. And the last thing that happened was the top five got asked a question by the host, you know, the person hosting. And I was the last to get a question. And so he asked really good questions like, um, what's your favorite kind of music? What's your favorite story about your family? What's your favorite um, whatever? I mean, you know, really good questions. And he got to me and he said, if you could be any animal in the world, <laughs> what would you be? I didn't even miss a beat. I said, a pig. <laughs> now, had I read this story, uh, I might have thought better of that answer. And as I looked out into the auditorium that was packed, I could see my mother go, <laughs> but I could also see my dad. And he laughed and laughed and laughed with everybody else in the auditorium. And after the pageant, which, by the way, I didn't place. Um, <clears throat> he, uh, <laughs> he grabbed me up in his arms and told me that that was probably the best beauty pageant answer he had ever heard. Well, if this uh, story today leaves you wondering what it's all about, join the club. I mean, and the pigs. You know, what is that about, really? Well, you know one of my favorite um, theologians, his, religious historians today is Diana Butler Bass. She is doing some of the most extraordinary writing she has ever done. And her blog this week tells about this story, and she asked the intriguing question that you're probably wondering about. Why the pigs, right? She then proceeds to answer her own question in the blog, and I'm indebted to her for the wisdom of this sermon today. Our gospel story this morning takes place in a region called the Decapolis. It's an area to the east of the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus crosses the sea to do this miraculous work. And if we were reading the Gospel of Mark, we might discover that Jesus does not perform miracles in his own hometown or is in his own home region, but rather is always in, in a foreign place. But we're in the Gospel of Luke, and Luke has taken this story from the Gospel of Mark, pretty much in whole cloth. I mean, there's some, some differences, but um, th this region that Jesus has come into is as I said, east of the Sea of Galilee, and known for being more Greek and Roman than Jewish in its culture. And <clears throat> that means it's a Hellenized culture, it's a Roman imperialist culture, there's temples to foreign gods, an outpost of the empire, not very Jewish. And so, as Diana butler Bass points out, so the pigs. <laughs> Most contemporary scholars most contemporary scholars do not believe this is a historical story, a historical event. 
but believe that it is a very important event for the people, the Jewish people and Jesus' followers. Um, so let's go back to Mark. Mark uh, was believed to have been written and the stories told in, about the Gospel of Mark in and around the year 70 of the Common Era. And Luke carefully follows Mark in this story. And Mark sets the story in Jerusha. And in 66 of the Common Era, Jerusha was a site of a brutal attack by Romans. A thousand people were killed. The story was intended for those who were hearing it to remember the attack of the Romans on their people. Mark and subsequently Luke was making a political link between the story of Jesus and the massacre. So it turns out that while most people for centuries talked about this as a miracle story designed to teach us about the power of Jesus, it's really a political commentary, political satire, if you will. John Dominic Crossan suggests it is resistance satire because it openly mocks Roman imperialism as demonic possession and reveals what domination does to those who are subjected to political cruelty, right? So think about that for a moment and move your thoughts into modern day where imperialistic behavior subjects people to political cruelty, and what kind of possession does that create? We wouldn't call it today demonic possession, but the story begins to make sense as a tale of a crazed man possessed by demons when we look at it from a political lens, right? The man's name that he says is Legion, and of course the Latin word Legion meant one thing to the people of, of Israel, a Roman Legion, a division of imperial soldiers the New Testament scholar Ched Myers explains the term herd used for the swine mostly referred to military recruits. And to dismiss the demons was a military command. And the pigs charged like soldiers charging into battle. And the pigs charged right into the water. Now, if you were well grounded in your Hebrew biblical stories, you would know what the people of that period would be thinking. Pharaoh's army is swept up into the waters. Another imperial domination. And not surprisingly, pork was a staple in the diet of imperial troops. Jesus sends the demons into the unclean food they ate, and they destroyed themselves. The Jewish people were still under the threat of the Roman army, um, and so is there any wonder that the story of Jesus liberating, or liberating, Jesus liberating power over and above Caesar had to be code, 
had to be a language of a parable or a miracle story in order for communities to be able to repeat the story without risking the destruction of their communities. Not unlike how enslaved people in the American South told stories of three freedom through their spirituals. Butler Bass writes this, I, I always dismissed this story when it was explained as a literal miracle of individual exorcism. I didn't have to be, it didn't have to be proved to me that Jesus had power. After all, what do I have in common with a zombie-like man who had taken refuge among the dead? I'm not filled with 2,000 demons. But when read as political satire, I suddenly find myself in the tale. Watching the news, it seems fairly apt, a fairly apt description of life in America today. The encounter with Jesus reveals the truth of possession, what those demons, that legion, the violent imperial forces of occupation, do to all of us. That man is the reality we seek to avoid. We demonize him as to not face what bedevils us. But freed from these demons, freed from the legion of empire, we can be the sort of people we were meant to be. Liberation is not only possible, but according to Butler Bass, it is at hand. In Luke, Jesus carries the kingdom in his wake. Wherever he walks, wherever he speaks, wherever the hurt are reconciled and touched, lives are transformed. The man's life is transformed by his encounter with Jesus, not just because he has been changed and liberated by Jesus, but also because the perception of his neighbors has been changed too. But don't you wonder what happened after Jesus left? Did the communities once transformed go back to old assumptions? Don't you wonder about that? I mean, why doesn't Luke or Mark or Matthew or any of them ever tell us about the aftermath of Jesus' transformative and liberating ministry. Could it be? Could it possibly be that we are left to tell the rest of the story? We are left to be the voices of God's liberating and transforming love? Could that be the answer to this? When Jesus shows up in our midst, messing up our categories and structures which we have learned to love even as they tear us apart, will we continue to follow Jesus? Will we persist in being a part of the transformative, liberating love of Jesus? Well, I want to tell you something. <laughs> I want to tell you about the North Texas journey. In 2005, a small group of people determined to bring the journey, a three-day spiritual renewal retreat to North Texas, decided to have a journey retreat. And this coming October, New Church, along with people from four additional churches and four states, will host North Texas Journey number 17. 
2005, North Texas Journey number one to 2022, North Texas Journey number 17. Now, what we've discovered along the way might surprise you. And it's that often we are preparing, when we're preparing for the journey, we bump up against obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. I mean, it seems a little scary sometimes. Individuals who have agreed to be part of the leadership team face personal crises, like illnesses or crises in their family or with their own health or with their pets, that cause them to have to make a very difficult decision to stay home. And all of a sudden, we're scrambling to fill the slots. Sometimes weather's a hindrance, like journey number three, when we had a snowstorm on the day we were scheduled to arrive. I mean, a snowstorm, ice on the roads. Or on that same journey, our lay leader got into a car accident on the way. And sometimes it's our own mistakes, like who knew we needed that many rooms? And so we hadn't booked enough rooms for everybody to be there. And we had to scramble. And of course, the most devastating was that our lead spiritual leader for one of our journeys was killed in a car accident the week of the journey. Even so, even so, when it seems like the forces of evil are pressed against us, even so, we have never canceled a journey. We have persisted because we have been convinced that the lives of those who participate will be transformed and liberated by their encounter of God's love revealed in Jesus Christ and through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We believe that. We've seen it. We've witnessed it. And lives have been changed and changed and changed by the change in the community as the leadership team welcomes all those lives into community. Transformation and liberation just doesn't happen in isolation, but in community. The man had been changed by Jesus, but he was also changed because of the perceptions of his neighbors, and so they were changed as well. Listen, there are no quick fixes to all of this. When it comes to doing the work of ministry, standing against the powers and principalities of empire, such as the racism that continues to haunt our churches and our communities, and so much more. There is, however, a promise. And the promise that is that God's love is greater than our deepest fears individually and as a community. Our aim as followers of Jesus is not just to be right. Our goal is not just getting the right answer or accolades from the people who agree with us. Our hope is love the kind of love that costs us something. The kind of love Jesus embodies in healing the sick and caring for the poor and helping to bring others close to the transforming and liberating love of God. A love that is all about belonging. A love that knows our names. A love that makes us whole. And that kind of love is a gift of the Spirit. Gifts not only for individuals but for communities and it is the work of the Spirit to bring those who are strangers together and to reconcile those who might otherwise live apart from community. 
And I want you to know that in the months ahead, our new church pastors, deacons, and council will be meeting to envision this kind of God-loving liberation. We're going to talk about it. We're going to pray about it. We're going to ask God to show us how to be that kind of church alive. We will also be inviting anyone who is interested in joining us in person or online to a time of discovering what exactly is God asking of us in this place and time. We've got lists of possibilities to care for those out there in a hurting and broken world, to change lives that need to be changed. We will also be inviting our online worshipers, y'all listen to this now, our online worshipers to join us for a time of reflecting on what we are doing well that engages you and what we need to do better and how you can join us in doing ministry in the name of Jesus right where you are. And in October, we will all gather in person and online for our annual congregational meeting to affirm and continue our ministries of liberating love. And maybe we'll do something like special, like anoint, or something like that, you know? And so doing, we will become the church alive. At the beginning of our gospel story this morning, the crazed man, possessed of demons, poignantly appeals to Jesus with these words. What have you to do with me? Jesus, begotten one of the most high God. And typical of Jesus, he responds with a question of his own. What is your name? Because to ask his name was to humanize him. To ask his name was to begin the process of bringing him back into community. To ask his name was to begin his liberation. What wondrous love is this? And today, we, possessed of our culture, we too can ask the same. What have you to do with us, Jesus, begotten one of the most high God? Listen. God's first language is silence. So listen. Listen for the still, small voice of the Most High God. Listen as Jesus asks you, what is your name? Why? Why listen? Because Jesus has everything to do with us and knows us by name and calls us to be God's light and liberating love in the world and invites you and me to join in bringing about that liberating love for all God's children. Thanks be to God. Amen.